Hey everyone and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven. That is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. And today is the literature episode. Because we're so fancy over here. I figured I would change it up from being like, it's about the books. So, I don't know. And it will be a longer episode because we're going to go on hiatus, so I have to talk about a lot of books before we leave. On top of that, you kind of had a whoopsie week when it comes to reading. Uh, That's one way to describe it. (laughs) So, we'll get right into it. For the news, I tried to keep it short and sweet. We only have three topics in the news section before we move on. First one is that New Line Cinema has announced a new prequel to The Lord of the Rings. And I'm going to pronounce this wrong. I apologize in advance. Don't come for me, please. <laughs> the War of Warum? Warum? You can't look for me for options on this because I am also not a field I could expert. find this pronounced nowhere. <laughs> it is set 250 years before Frodo and the Fellowship embark on the classic adventure to Mount Doom. New Line revealed that the film will detail the life of Helm Hammerhand, who is King of Rohan. Okay. And the bloody origin of Helm's Deep, which was featured in the Two Towers movie. Kenji Kamayama is set to direct with Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews as screenwriters. That is all the information I could find out about that one. I know how to pronounce none of that. Please don't kill me. (laughs) I don't think anybody's going to try to kill you, but... (laughs) They would come for me, I promise. (laughs) And also, Jack Huston has been cast as writer and actor in a new adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo. I thought this was fitting because The Count of Monte Cristo is actually on my 40 before 40, which is 40 books I want to read before I turn 40 in about eight years from now. The list is going to come out later, but this book is on it. So very timely for me, at least. Yeah. Huston will play the lead role of Nicholas Christo, who is a man who is broken, betrayed, and locked away for over a decade, fighting to bring justice to a world even more cruel and corrupt than the one that was taken from him. The original novel is set in France, but this retelling will take place in Asia and North America, which is at least part of the reason the main character got a name change from Edmond Dantes to Nicholas Christo. And the adaptation will be directed by Stephen Fung and produced by Ian Duncan and Simone Boyce. And then the one piece of news that I think you will find the most interesting. Or if you don't, I don't know who you are. You've said this a couple times in the past episodes. I've always been wrong. And you've been pretty much completely wrong. So Hachette Books has announced the upcoming release of a Samuel L. Jackson biography. And I'm going to have to bleep part of the title, so I apologize. But I think you'll know what I mean when I say that it is called Bad Mother... I'm, I'm loving it. Which is set to come out on October 19th. Is it actually going to be spelled out on the book cover? Or is it going to be just From like... From what I saw, it is the full marks? thing. The full phrase. Because like that's kind of a, a no-no in the world of book manufacturing. Normally on books, it's all bleeped out and stuff. But we'll see what actually happens. So the author, Gavin Edwards, is going to detail Jackson's impressive filmography and his tumultuous life so far. Edwards even looks into his personal obsessions like kung fu movies, golf, and obviously profanity. Edwards has written other biographies, including ones about River Phoenix and Bill Murray, so he's used to writing about these big names that people know. So he has experience, is what we're hearing. Yeah, so I think you'll enjoy that. Whether or not you read it, at least you'll enjoy the fact that there's a book coming out with that title. Right. But as always happens at the end of the month, the biggest news is really all the releases that are coming out in the following month. So for July releases, the first one I have is another memoir or biography. So it's Trejo, My Life of Crime, Redemption, and Hollywood by Danny Trejo. Comes out on July 6th. It's a biography about him and his journey from crime, prison, addiction, and loss to unexpected fame as Hollywood's favorite bad guy with a heart of gold. 
He really is. It's, it's so funny. People are like, he's just the stereotypical bad guy everywhere he goes. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's one of the nicest people you could ever meet. Having met him once, I can attest he's really a nice person. Yeah. And I was looking through all of his filmography. Like, it feels like he's been in a ton of stuff. A lot. What I particularly remember him from is the first Spy Kids movie. I was going to say, Spy Kids is definitely the one on your list. Right. Yeah. And then when this movie originally came out, I was still really young, this next movie that I'm going to talk about, but I watched it because Johnny Depp was in it and I liked him a lot at the time. So I also saw him in Once Upon a Time in Mexico, which is so not a kid-friendly movie. Do not Not let your child watch that movie. Not even kind of. I was kind of scarred a little bit, but I also saw him in that movie. Yes, he did play a pretty important role in that movie as well. The other book coming out on July 6th, or one of many, is Any Way the Wind Blows by Rainbow Rowell. July 6th release, it's a YA fantasy. It's book number three in the Simon Snow series. And this series is basically a series within a book. So Rainbow Rowell had written a book called Fangirl. Yeah. And the main character there, Kath, writes fan fiction of a book series that she really enjoys. And it's supposed to be Harry Potter, but obviously she can't because Harry Potter's copywritten. You don't say. So she came up with the Simon Snow series as the series this girl was obsessed with in the book. And then she it wrote the It became really popular, so she started writing the books for the Simon Snow series. That's interesting. So I, I did see that Barnes & Noble is going to be like hosting an event not sponsored, FYI, just... I noticed that they're going to be hosting a live event with Rainbow Rowls, so yeah. when the book date released, so that's kind of cool. So I don't know a ton about the Simon Snow series. I don't really read Rainbow Rowl anymore. I did read Fangirl, and so I know roughly what this is. It's similar to Harry Potter, but also there's vampires, and there's possibly a romance in there between two of the main male characters, but that's about all I know from what I've overheard about it. That sounds like kind of something you would enjoy, though, so... I'm not a huge fan of Rainbow Rowell's writing. Got it. So I don't know that I would. I like fantasy. Obviously, that's one of my main genres I read, but... Which it checks a lot of boxes for. I just don't think her writing's for me. Got it. I did read a few things by her, and then a lot of information about her came out, and she's... Sort of one of those authors that culturally appropriates things from other cultures. And so, like, that's not great. Got it, got it. But I know this is a really popular series, so that's why I mention it. The first one was Carry On. The second one was Wayward Son. And this one is Any Way the Wind Blows. So, obviously, stealing lines from certain songs. And stealing ideas from certain books, it seems. So, it's kind of like, ah. Yeah. It's been a really popular series. Yeah. And then the last book I have that's coming out on July 6th is Six Crimson Cranes by Elizabeth Lynn. It's another YA fantasy, and it's book number one in the Six Crimson Cranes series. The main character, Shiori, is the only princess of Kiata, and she has forbidden magic running through her veins that she struggles to control. At her betrothal ceremony, she loses control over it, and that ends up catching the eye of, like, this evil stepmother figure in her life. And because of that, she ends up discovering a conspiracy to overtake the throne. I'm not going to go more in-depth than that. The plot summary on Goodreads really goes into depth. I'm like, you're revealing way more of the story than you should be right now, so I'm just going to leave that there. Got it. It sounds like it's going to have political intrigue, magic... All the things we love in a fantasy. On July 13th, there is another book coming out by Grady Hendrix. This is someone who is making a big splash in like horror, mystery, thriller. And this one is called The Final Girl Support Group. It's a standalone adult mystery slash thriller. And basically, in horror movies, the final girl is the one left standing when the credits roll. She's the one that got captured but managed to survive somehow by fighting her way out defeating the killer, avenging friends, that sort of thing. The one who emerges bloodied, but victorious. But after the sirens fade, what happens to her? So this is the story of Lynette, who is a real-life final girl, who has been meeting with five other final girls in a support group with their therapist for years. 
until one of the women ends up missing a meeting and it turns out that someone knows about the group and is determined to take their lives apart again piece by piece. And I'm thinking that at the end you're going to have another final girl, but it's the final girl of all the final girls or something like that will happen. Okay. But this is someone who I'm not particularly interested in their mystery thrillers. We're discovering as this podcast is going that I like YA mystery thrillers, but adult I don't because it relies on tropes that I don't love. And so this is not someone that I would ever really want to get into, but this author is so popular right now and everyone loves everything that they're producing. So I feel like it's definitely worth mentioning. And some people have already gotten arcs of this. I've seen them already come out with pretty much glowing reviews for this. So I know it's going to make a big splash when it does come out middle of July. Yeah. And there's another mystery thriller also coming out on July 13th. It's Such a Quiet Place by Megan Miranda. Standalone adult mystery thriller. A year and a half after the murders of Brandon and Fiona Truitt, Ruby Fletcher's conviction is overturned and she returns to Hollow's Edge. The once private and idyllic neighborhood is now simmering with lies, secrets, and mysteries under the surface. Not everyone told the truth about the night of the Truitt's murders. Can the people of the town uncover the truth before someone becomes the killer's next victim? It's an interesting plotline. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely watch, like, a true crime documentary about this, but when I read it, I'm not sure. Right. Though I have read Megan Miranda before, and she is one of the authors that, like, if I was gonna read an adult mystery thriller, it would be something she has written. So I feel like she leans less into tropes that I don't like than other authors do. And the last book coming out on July 13th is A Psalm for the Wild Built by Becky Chambers. I've read one Becky Chambers before and enjoyed it, but she's super popular in the sci-fi realm. This is a brand new sci-fi series for adults. It's book number one in the Monk and Robot series. So is there a monkey and a robot? The Monk and Robot series. Oh, it's like a monk like the church The ones with the robes and stuff. Got it. Yeah. It's been centuries since the robots of Earth gained self-awareness and laid down their tools. Centuries since they wandered en masse into the wilderness, never to be seen again. One day, the life of a tea monk is upended by the arrival of a robot there to honor the old promise of checking in. The robot cannot go back until the question of what do people need is answered, but the answer to the question depends on who you ask and how, and they're going to need to ask it a lot. It's supposed to be a pretty short novella, and so I think depending on what sort of, like, themes this one is trying to hit, it could be really good. It sounds like it would be a good book. And it's by Tor, and I like a lot of things that Tor publishes, so I think this could be a good one for me as well. There's only one that I have on this list that's coming out on July 20th, and it is These Hollow Vows by Lexi Ryan. It's a YA fantasy and book number one in the These Hollow Vows series. The main character, Bree, hates the Fae and refuses to have anything to do with them, even if that means starving on the street. But when her sister is sold to the king of the unseely court to pay a debt, she'll do whatever it takes to get her back, including making a deal with the king himself to steal three magical relics from the Seely court. So it's sort of political intrigue, fey, fantasy, that sort of thing. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of fey, but I feel like if you are, there's probably one of those. Like, you have to at least try it and see if you enjoy this author's writing. Fey is, like, more or less, like, fairy-based? Yes. Okay. I was like, I kind of feel like I know what this is based around, but I'm not 110% on, on par with it, but that makes sense. On... July 27th, we have Gods and Monsters by Shelby Mahurin. It's a new adult fantasy, and this will be book number three in the Serpent and Dove series. So I will just give a quick, like, series synopsis instead of trying to get into what this one is, because I haven't read this series, but it is super popular. The first book, at least, is an enemies to lovers story about a witch and a witch hunter, which really gives me, like, Nina and Matthias vibes from the Six of Crows, Lee Bardugo, sort of series. 
And I think it's actually come out that the author originally wrote this as like a Nina and Matthias fanfic and then turned it into something else. Got it. So it does have roots in that. It has a basis of that love line. Yes. And then just being changed a little bit. In this series, Louise LeBlanc fled her coven and took shelter in the city of Cesarin, Cesarin, forsaking all magic and living off whatever she could steal. Reed Diggory is sworn to the church as a chasseur and has lived his life by one principle, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. His path was never meant to cross with Luz, but a wicked stunt forces them into an impossible union. Who doesn't love a Diggory? That's all I have to say. Right. (laughs) And I didn't want to read this just based off of what some of the reviews were about it, but I feel like if you're already into this series, you'll be excited for this one coming out. And the last book I have here for July releases also comes out on the 27th, and this title will also have to be bleeped, and I apologize for that. I love that you're apologizing to yourself when you have to go back through and edit it. And I mean, it I was apologizing for the people who might listen, but also, yes, future self, I'm sorry you have to mess edit with this that. Out. <laughs> and the book is The Life-Changing Science of Detecting Bull by John V. Petricelli. Celli? Petricelli. It's a nonfiction book that reveals the critical thinking habits you can develop to recognize and combat pervasive false information, and delusional thinking that has become a common feature in everyday life. Did I just add this to the list because of the title? Possibly. I was going to say yes. (laughs) I think you just added to it because you like profanity and you like to have it on the podcast but then edit it back out. So (laughs) I definitely don't like editing it out, so I don't know about all that. But those are some of the more popular books that are coming out in July. When I looked through to see if I had anything pre-ordered for July, this is like the one of like two months of the year that I have nothing. So, Well, I feel like that second to last book sounded interesting, but you said it was a step into the series, right? Like there's already another book previous to it? Right. So the next to last one, Gods and Monsters, is the third, possibly the final book in the series, the Serpent and Dove series. I think the main reason I'm not into it is it's taking its basis off of a different book series, which can be fine. I'm not sure about it, though. And part of the reason other than that is I've heard that some of the logic doesn't make sense. Like, the reason that they have to, like, get fake married doesn't make sense. Got it. And then I also liked the the monk and robot. I feel like that would be an interesting one too. I feel like you would enjoy Becky Chambers, but I've only read one of hers, so I'm sort of afraid to like steer you in that direction just because I don't know enough about their like backlist. Well, you know that I like sci-fi, so it's really not that complex. So. Right, right. But getting into what I have been reading this week, you're right. It was an uh-oh week. I don't know how this happened, except I do know how this happened. I read four books. so whoops oops and it's not like any of the of these are novellas they're all a minimum of 300 pages so like i was gonna say they weren't not full-size books right you definitely racked up some page count so i think i finished the first one on sunday and then i was waiting for the new release of the box in the woods to come in so i'm like well i might as well read something while i'm waiting And I finished that really quickly because while I was reading that, the box in the woods came in. So I was excited to get to that. And then I was excited to be reading that. And I read it in 24 hours. And I was like, well, I have to read something else. So I picked up another book. It's it's just so funny to me. Whenever something from Maureen Johnson comes in, you're just like, "Uh, we're reading this right now and it's done. Yeah. But like when we actually met her, it was like, you know, you're playing... With the fact that I have anxiety problems, (laughs) and it's not kind, but yes, I met Maureen Johnson one time, and I just stood there while you all talked to her, and I got all of my books signed, (laughs) so. Both both Lucy and I were like, well, firstly, I was like, I haven't ever read one of your books, and just started talking to her, and then Lucy's like, yeah, I might have read one. (laughs) 
Yeah. And I'm like... And I'm just standing here holding four The whole books. collection, like, please? Would you please sign these four books? Thank you. It was very uncomfortable for me. Probably I made it uncomfortable for her, which is weird considering how many people she meets, but... I'm, like, hoping one day the podcast takes off enough to where we get to interview her and you can get, like, your redemption. And if I have to, I'm going to send her all the episodes where I mention her in it just because like we can you, you get your awkward out definitely not do that also it's cute <laughs> that you think i would have a redemption moment when that's not at all what would happen <laughs> you would be asking her questions that i had pre-written down <laughs> and then i would just be sitting there yeah and the reality is i would be okay with that and obviously i would have to read a couple of her books before we actually did that because i'd want it to be more off the cuff comfortable rather than just me reading off of a page like and my wife wants to know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But that's completely off topic. What I read this week. I finished The Girl of Fire and Thorns by Ray Carson, which is a 2011 release. And it's a YA fantasy novel. I rated it 3.25 stars. Looking back, you know, a week after I finished it, that might have been being kind, giving it 3.25 stars. The synopsis for this is that once a century, one person is chosen for greatness. Eliza is the youngest of two princesses and has led a quiet life of luxury and hasn't really done anything remarkable, but she is the chosen one. On her 16th birthday, all of the usual life of luxury things that she's enjoyed changes when she marries a king from a nearby kingdom and people begin expecting things of her. Can she save his kingdom or will she die young like most chosen ones do? Right. It's the first one in a series, so obviously she didn't die in that one. But there were a lot of things that I struggled with with this one. And one of them being she considers herself to be unremarkable because she is fat. And like it's not just like her perception of herself, but like other people mention that she's fat. And she also like... Every time that we see her try to put on a dress, it's just slightly too tight and, like, yeah, she gets winded going up and down the stairs in the castle and things like that. So, like, she is very canonically fat. And that's fine. I don't have a problem if you have a fat main character, but it's the way her fatness is discussed and, like, her love of food is, like, seen as this really bad thing because she's fat. Whereas if she was skinny, it wouldn't be considered a bad thing. It would just be a foodie instead right. of that. Yeah. And at one point she gets kidnapped and dragged across the desert. And she has to basically become this nomad working to help save the people who had kidnapped her. And traversing the desert over the course of a month, suddenly she is like rail thin. She's not fat anymore. And where she could barely walk for a day, now she can do all these things. And that just seemed really toxic, almost, the way that that happened and the way it was discussed. I can see that being the case. Like, all of a sudden, she could do all these things, so she felt better about herself, and everyone else started treating her differently because she was no longer fat. And it just, it was kind of gross, the way that happened. But also... It felt like it was just plot point to plot point and like their world building was almost non-existent. And I can't even really say that it's like a book of its time because books in 2011 were better at world building, at least the ones that I've read and loved. Right. And so I think it's just a writing thing that I don't enjoy Ray Carson. And I'm realizing I should not pick up people's older recommendations Like, I'll watch a YouTube video and someone will go, oh, I read this when it first came out and I loved it and it's, like, a 10-year-old book. And I just really shouldn't pick it up. Yeah. Because, like, they have nostalgia attached to it, whereas I don't have that when reading it for the first time. Right. Which is a little bit of my concern when we go to read Hatchet whenever we do is because it's going to be, like, that same thing where... Well, I can guarantee that will not make, like, my favorite books of the year list or anything like that. You don't know that, though. It's a survival story. You might like it. Of a teenage boy. Yeah. Or preteen boy. Yeah. We'll find out in season three. Yeah. And then after I finished that on Sunday, I pretty much immediately picked up Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone in the Mina Lima edition. Your mother got me that for my birthday, and I read it in like 36 hours. So the first Harry Potter is easy to read anyway, because I've read it so often, but also 
I wanted to like get through and see the artwork and like I was thinking ahead to like what will they do for this scene later in the book and like I wanted to get to that. You were absorbing in the extra information as well it seemed like there were times where when I was reading you would just stop and I'm like are you all right and you're like yes. (laughs) Yeah it's a gorgeous edition of the book. I don't want to give JK Rowling my money but Technically, your mother gave her her money, so that almost makes it okay. Makes it a little better. So whenever the next one comes out, I'll be like, Mom, you know what you need to buy? The second book. I don't know if it works at that point, but I finished that pretty quickly in the week as well. So I started The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. This is a new release. It just came out June 15th. It's book number four in the Truly Devious series. And it's a YA mystery that I ended up rating four stars. So it seems like all of Maureen Johnson's mystery books, I really enjoy them. But it's never to the point where like, this is my new favorite book or one of my favorite books of all time. Which is weird because the way you read them, you think they're like the greatest thing in the entire world. So I think this time I sort of had a problem with the mystery itself. I felt like there weren't enough flashback scenes, which I would have enjoyed, but because of the way that the mystery is uncovered, it couldn't have as many flashbacks, and I can't really get into that without getting into the mystery itself, so I'll cut that off there. But also, I felt like she didn't leave enough breadcrumbs for the reader to be able to solve it themselves before it's revealed by Stevie, the main character. So I didn't enjoy that as much because it's like I want a chance to be able to put all the pieces together and all the foreshadowing and stuff. And I felt like I kind of knew who the person was, except I didn't. And the way that it gets solved makes it a little hard to like reason out why you feel that way. Got it. I feel like that's the best way I can explain it without actually getting into it. And ruining the book for everyone. But in this one, Stevie Bell is set to have a boring summer until the new owner of Camp Sunny Pines asks her to solve the 1978 Box in the Woods murders. Stevie, Janelle, and Nate all travel to the camp to work as counselors and dig up all of the old clues about the case. Will she find the truth or will someone put a stop to her investigation before it ever really starts? And, you know, it's got... The sense of humor I love from reading Maureen Johnson, it's got a setting that I could really dive into and appreciate, and it's got all the characters that I love from the rest of the books in the series. I will say that Janelle is less present in the story just because of the way that the situation is set up for the camp and all of that, but it did help me rediscover my like love for Nate as a character. And I feel like he gets less of a spotlight in the truly devious, like, the first three books. But in this one, it's more of her solving things with Nate. And so I kind of appreciated that, too. So he's being kind of brought more into the limelight a little bit. Right. And because I finished that in less than 24 hours, I had... Why not next? I had way too much time left in the week. I think I finished those three books by, like, Wednesday or, like, Thursday morning. Right. And so I had the rest of the week to read. And so I read Love, Lacey Donovan by Jill Brashear. It's a 2020 release, and it's an adult rom-com from the Ten First Dates anthology. And it's that anthology I got for a couple bucks that has ten first books or standalones in uh, an anthology. And I had read the first one on the rocks was it a few weeks back? Yeah, I remember and us talking about it. I, like, pretty much hated that one. It was, like, a 1.5 or something, and the writing was really bad, and I was really nervous to keep going. But I bought a 10-book anthology, so I want to read all of them. But this one I actually really enjoyed. I ended up rating it 3.25 stars, which is really good for just, like, a rom-com, I think. Yeah. So, for the synopsis for this one... Our main character, after getting her heart torn apart by a real-world romance, Lacey has sworn off real men and only has book boyfriends. Book boyfriends don't break your heart, and book boyfriends are there whenever you need them, but Beckett is the one man who could change everything. Not dun-dun-dun, but it kind of sounds like a dun-dun-dun. Right. And this one was just really cute and sweet, and, like, obviously I feel like you kind of have to suspend your disbelief because... 
there are certain secrets about Beckett that when they're revealed, it's like, obviously that wouldn't happen in real life, but like, it's a book and it was really cute and sweet. And you see Lacey sort of have to confront the fact that she's been running away from her real feelings and her real life since she became an adult and moving state to state to avoid really settling down and putting roots But then she moves to the small town in North Carolina and she makes a lot of friends and everyone welcomes her and she feels like this is it. This is her place. And she considers settling down there until she accidentally develops this romance with Beckett. And she has to either confront her feelings and deal with things she hasn't wanted to deal with or, you know, do what she's always done and run away and sort of lose this higher standard of living than, you know, being a nomad. It was really cute. I enjoyed it. It made me less apprehensive about continuing this anthology. So I think we'll finish it eventually. That's good. And now we come to one of the longer parts of the podcast that I'm going to apologize for in advance. I'm going to try to get through it quickly. But we have about three weeks before we record again as soon as we end our recording today. So I have about 10 books I'm going to try to read in that time frame because I have a book I picked up because my new release isn't here yet. I have a new release that I'm going to pick up. I have five books that I plan on reading for Christmas in July, which is the week of my birthday that I plan on doing a bunch of Christmas movies and books and baking and stuff like that. And then I have two books from my 40 books before I turned 40. And then I have the next book for the first episode of season three that needs to get read. Altogether, 10 books. The first one is The Young World by Chris Wheats. It's a 2014 release and a YA dystopian novel, book one in the Young World series. It is also the next to last book for me to read of my Read It or Leave It 2021 list, which are books that I have to read or get rid of by the end of the year. You mean Read or Leave means to get rid of the old books? No. Shocking. In this one... New York City is a city run by teens. A sickness has wiped out the rest of the population and the young survivors assemble in tightly run tribes. But when a possible cure for the sickness has been uncovered, a ragtag team must come together to save humankind. After that, I'll read Witch Shadow by Susan Dennard, if it ever arrives. It's a new release (laughs) and just came out on June 22nd. It's a new adult-slash-adult fantasy novel and book number four in the Witchland series, so I can't tell you much about it, but this one focuses on Izult, who has finally reunited with her thread sister, Safi, but the reunion doesn't last long because she has to flee Kartara if she wants to stay alive. And that's really all I can say without getting into the other books. Then it'll be Christmas and July week for me. The first book I plan on reading for that is A Winter's Dream by Sophie Clare. It's a 2020 release and an adult romance set during Christmas. The synopsis for this one is that our main character, Liberty, has never been a risk taker, but the arrival of a mysterious gift prompts her to complete daily challenges to say yes to everything in December and romance ensues. Yes, we have the same name. Is that part of the reason that I picked this up? Probably a little bit, but I think it was also a free book from a group that I met on Facebook. I was going to say, uh, as soon as I heard the name Liberty as the character, I was like, uh, hello? I saw you cock your head like you're one of those dogs, like, excuse me? You said my name? Yep. Yeah. And after that, I'm going to read a novella called Snowden at Snowflake B&B by Kelly Hales, I think is how you pronounce her last name. It's also a 2020 release and an adult romance set during Christmas. Samantha has always loved working at the Snowflake B&B, especially during Christmas time, but the new owner could ruin everything for her. Can she save the B&B in time for Christmas? Will she find love under the mistletoe? Probably yes, and also probably yes. (laughs) Yes and yes. The next Christmas book I'm going to read is A Sugar Creek Christmas by Jenny B. Jones. It's a 2014 release, so an older one of the books I plan on reading. It's an adult romance and book number one in the Sugar Creek series. It's a second chance romance when newly unemployed Emma finds a job back in her hometown of Sugar Creek, Arkansas. 
And then one that I picked up based off someone else's suggestion from a group I'm in on Facebook is Faking Under the Mistletoe by Ashley Shepard. It's a 2019 release and a new adult romance set during Christmas. Olivia is the human embodiment of Christmas cheer. She has all the holiday sweaters, bakes all the holiday cookies, sees all the holiday movies. So she goes out of her way to ungrinch the grinchiest man she knows, which just so happens to include fake dating him. Fake dating. I love it. I can't wait to read it. <laughs> and then one I picked up as a NetGalley arc actually is A Magical New York Christmas by Anita Hughes. This one is set to come out on September 28th, so in time for the people who pick up holiday books in the later half of the year, later quarter of the year. It's an adult holiday romance. A magical Christmas week at the Plaza Hotel in New York City for Sabrina Post includes a job offer to write the memoir of a famous art dealer and falling in love with another hotel guest. And that will conclude the Christmas in July section of what I'm reading next. And then one of the books I'm going to pick up, the first book I'm going to pick up for the 40 books I want to read before I'm 40 is Winnie the Pooh by A.A. Milne. Okay. It's released in 1926, which feels like it should be longer ago. I was going to say Winnie the Pooh's been out for a minute and some some change. Almost 100 years. Yeah. This is a children's classic about Christopher Robin and his toys and... I'm someone who used to watch the original Winnie the Pooh movie to go to sleep every night when I was a kid. So, like, I've had this book on my shelves for way too long. I should have read it already. That's why it's on my 40 Before 40. And then another one on my 40 Before 40 list is The Lies of Loch Lomora by Scott Lynch, which is a 2006 release and an adult fantasy novel. I'm going to have to bleep out the title of the series, but it's book number one in the Gentleman series. Young orphan Locke Lamora dodges death and slavery by becoming a thief under the tutelage of a master con artist. Includes found family tropes and heists. So I'm excited to read this one. I've also heard that it's pretty dense, which is why I've saved it for when I should have more time to read because of the hiatus of the podcast. And the final book I'm hoping to read while we're on that hiatus before season three starts, is Renegades by Marissa Meyer. It's a 2017 release and a YA fantasy novel. Some people also call it a sci-fi, so I don't know sci-fi or fantasy. It kind of crosses both lines. It's a reread for me. We're reading it for the podcast for Mm -hmm. next season. The Renegades are humans with extraordinary abilities who emerge from the ruins of a crumbled society and establish peace and order where chaos once reigned. They remain a symbol of hope and courage to everyone, except for the villains that they overthrew. Nova has a reason to hate the Renegades, and she's on a mission for vengeance. Love a good vengeance story. Right. This one's really good. I hope you'll enjoy it. That's what we'll have to talk about first whenever we come back from our little break. I'm excited to read it, honestly, based on what you've been telling me about it. It sounds like it'll be a book that's more or less up my alley. Definitely more than what you have been reading. And you just finished Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. You read the second half of it this past week. Yeah. Was the second half any better than the first half? Is my it, it was. It was. I, I feel like you got to see a little more of the friendship between the trifecta group and then you got to see a little bit more of like the realities of mental health like obviously i try to grasp it the best i can but like the level of mental health i have is basically just add and that's not even in my opinion that far onto that spectrum right right so like i try to grasp at it but like i i don't understand it i'll be the first to admit like i try to do better and better with it and it never gets too much easier for me, but I, I do try. So that's, I think, the important part about it. But um, this book definitely cleared up a lot for me to just, like, grasp how things are with certain people. So like Right. Well, and everyone's different, and I think it's a good thing for you to not 100% be able to understand because you don't want to be in Aza's shoes. No. Yeah. Like, you never want to get as bad as this main character gets in the novel. Right. And that's kind of where I'm at, I guess. And where we pick up with chapter 13, 
Aza's just had a really bad few days with her mental health, and she's sort of going into this tightening spiral. Yeah. So we see another appointment with her therapist, Dr. Singh, and a few things Dr. Singh tells Aza that I personally found helpful as I was reading it, and that Aza did really not find helpful. Like, I found this advice very helpful when I was reading it the first time, and Aza just doesn't. Yeah. The first one being, thoughts are only thoughts. They are not you. You do belong to yourself, even if your thoughts don't. And the second one is, you are as real as anyone, and your doubts make you more real, not less. And, like, those two pieces of advice have really gotten me through a lot of tougher times. And being able to say, like, you are not your thoughts, it has, like, helped me a whole lot. Yeah. Even if this is, like a fictional novel and this is something that like a therapist might actually say seeing it in book form just sort of i don't know made it easier for me to accept i think yeah so that's probably the best thing i had come out of this book for me right and when aza gets home from the appointment her mom is still obviously concerned about her And this is when I feel like we feel the pressure here from her mom for Aza to get better or, like, not have as many problems. Just any sort of, like, forward momentum with her mental health. Yeah, yeah. And, like, she means well, but that pressure is doing nothing to help Aza and her OCD and her thought spirals. But, again, I think her mom's kind of in the situation where I am, where it's like, I'm trying to understand, but I don't. Right, right. And in those situations, I feel like, especially with kids, like, maybe after seeing the psychologist, have a one-on-one with the psychologist and just be like, what can I do to help? Right. Instead of being in a situation uh, where she was, where it was just like... I want you to be better. It's like, yeah, that's not how things get better. Like, it's just like, why aren't you better? You know, that's obviously not how that works. Diving into a little bit of story time, not related to the book, but I was once friends with someone who thought that I should just not focus on my mental health problems and that'll sort of make me better. And I'm like, that is not how mental health works. Thinking about something else will not make me mentally better than I already am. Yeah. So I feel like kind of that's how Aza's mom is. Like, just don't focus on it and you'll be okay. Like, that's not how that works. That's how it works for a normal person that's not experiencing mental health issues. But other than that, that's not at all how it works. And BS advice. And let's be honest, even for people that don't have mental health issues, that's still sometimes not really great advice. Like, it doesn't work all the time. Yeah. And so, I don't know. And then after... I think it's the next day, maybe. Aza goes to Davis's house for another date. And while there, she runs into the security guy, Lyle. And he tries to warn Aza that both Davis and Noah are fragile, which feels a little weird after just having seen Aza go through this, like, scary thought spirals and everything else. But Lyle doesn't understand that, though, either. So. Right. And I think it also kind of puts into mind for the reader that, like, you might be having problems, but that doesn't mean someone else isn't also having problems oh, at the same time. Absolutely, yeah. And they end up watching Jupiter Ascending, which I mentioned the title for no real reason, but like, I, I like that movie. Yeah, you put a heart on the page, I believe, <laughs> if I remember that correctly. It's garbage, and I enjoy it. And Asa seems to be okay enough. Like, she's able to hold Davis's hand and kiss him. But while kissing him, she again falls into a thought spiral about how, like, gross this is and bodies are horrible and, like, his biomes are now my biomes. Like, don't get me wrong, like, this book definitely put that thought in my mind now and I'm like, good thing I'm married. I don't have to worry about any of that, like, long-term fear It's already happened. It's too late. Yeah, there's no going back. But Aza ends up excusing herself, goes to the bathroom where she splashes water on her face, and then for reasons that only her OCD brain can know, she ends up squirting hand sanitizer into her mouth to deal with the intrusive thoughts and compulsions of, this is gross, this is how you fix it, you're going to die if you don't. And that's a lot of how, like, OCD works, is, like, if you don't do this, then this happens. I feel like this is where you see it get to, like, another level of extreme, though. Right, right. And and it only ramps up from here based on the way the rest of the book goes. So, like, it'll eventually start to kind of ramp down, but, like, boy, does it get wild here this pretty is, soon. This is going up the ramp. Yeah. Just 
getting there. Yeah, because, you know, drinking hand sanitizer is a normal thing. Definitely not. And after that, she ends up running into Noah, and they talk about how no one is really looking for their dad, and that everyone just kind of accepts that he's on the run and doesn't want to be found. Right. And he's asking questions like, shouldn't they have heard from him by now? Like, in some way, an email from an email kiosk somewhere, or computer kiosk somewhere, or something. Yeah. But after that, Aza ends up with Davis in the theater, and she can't focus on talking with Davis about Noah and how Noah is doing. She is so concerned about the bacteria that have entered her mouth by kissing Davis. So I think that is, like a moment to sort of shine a spotlight on, like, even though this, like, real-world serious problem thing is happening and it's a concern of Noah's and it should be a concern to Aza and Davis and they should have a conversation about it, instead all she can think about is germs and cooties and, like, she can't really focus on what's real and right in front of her yeah, because her OCD is so bad. Right. And, like, I just really feel bad for Noah throughout this whole thing. Like, I can't imagine... Yeah, as a kid at his age, like, it's got to be just crippling. Yeah. But when she goes home that night, Aza looks through Davis's blog, and we see how he's struggling with sort of being a parent figure for Noah and his own emotions about his dad. We also see some unfiltered thoughts about Aza from Davis's blog. And while she's on his blog, he ends up texting her because he's noticed his blog has some hits from the area. And he's worried that a reporter has found his blog, but it's just Aza. They end up FaceTiming, and Aza realizes she's more comfortable and relaxed than she's ever been while being in Davis's presence. Like, this sort of, like, buffer helps her be more herself. I can kind of see how that is, because, like, there's no pressure of any physical intimacy within that space. And she has such a problem with bodies and biomes and cooties and germs. You don't say. And instead of just going to bed after that, she ends up finding herself reading Daisy's fan fiction stories about Star Wars. And that's where she finds that she has been inserted into these stories as an annoying OC or original character. And so she's really hurt by what she's seen in Daisy's fanfic. Right. And the next morning, Aza wants to get mad at Daisy and get into this argument with her, but she's worried that it's going to cost her friendship with Daisy. So she sort of just bottles everything in, you know, the way humans do. Right, because that's healthy. And they end up hanging out at Aza's house after school, and it's really tense, though Daisy doesn't know what's going on or why her friend's acting like this. And... Aza is trying to find more information out about Pickett's disappearance, but Daisy is trying to talk her out of it because Davis basically gave them the reward money to not look into it. Right. And they sort of have, like, this tiny little flare-up, but not really, like, a big fight, and Daisy ends up going home. The next night, Aza goes back over to Davis's house, and they're watching the stars and talking about Daisy's fan fiction and swimming in the pool and talking about the Tuatara, as you do. Afterward, they used the telescope in Davis's room to look at the stars, and they have this big conversation about how, like, looking into the past and how Davis is going to constantly prefer looking at the stars that takes him back to before he lost his mother and this, like, idea of not being able to accept your past sort of thing, which is a theme I didn't really expect to get into in this novel since it's so focused on Aza. And her OCD, which is such a, like, present moment sort of problem. Afterwards, she sees her mom, and her mom is, again, concerned and putting pressure on Aza. Yeah, it's not until a little later in the book that she really kind of, like, grasps what the right thing to do is in certain situations. At least her mom, anyways. Well, her mom just is a mom. And she wants to do the right thing, but she doesn't know what the right thing is. So it's constantly Just feeling like pressure yeah. to Aza. Yeah. But she also goes back onto Davis's blog, which should have ended her night on a high note because he writes some sappy sweet things on there about their date. But she goes and reads even more of Daisy's fan fiction because, like, I might as well make myself feel worse about this situation. Why not? Mental health problems are great on dialing into that sort of thing. 
But that somehow leads her to reading Wikipedia articles that really aren't helping her OCD and her compulsions. And she's just kind of feeding that monster. Spiraling and spiraling and spiraling and spiraling. Yeah. And she ends up drinking more hand sanitizer and spiraling even more before she goes to bed that night. Which I feel like she should be really sick at this point. Yeah. As far as my understanding is like hand sanitizer is the same way as like canned air. They put chemicals in it to make you sick so that you don't ingest it. I have never heard that before. I didn't know that about canned air. Well, education on things you shouldn't do. But that night, Aza doesn't get much sleep, heads off to school, and she and Daisy agree to hang out afterwards. When they're in the car on the way to Aza's house after school, Aza finally speaks up about what's been making her angry at Daisy for the past few days. And Daisy owns up to the fact that it's crappy that she made this character and used it in multiple stories, but she also defends herself about the way that Aza is and how selfish Aza can be. Yeah, by literally being like, well, what's the name of my sister? What's this? What's that? Like, the list goes on and on. Because everything's constantly about Aza and, like, her mental health problems and her backstory and what's going on with her. So, like, I get both perspectives because I feel like at times when your mental health kicks up, you get a little distracted. So I can kind of see the perspective from Daisy a little bit, but... At the same time, like, you you have to be understanding to an extent, too. And I feel like Daisy is. It's just at a certain point, like, it's too much if it goes on and on and on. And I'm blessed that that's not the case here, so. Something I found really interesting was that Aza's like, I know I'm a lot. I know it's a lot for you guys to deal with. But imagine being the person stuck in these thoughts and stuck in this body and, like, I'm sick of this crap, too. I can't get away from it the way that you or Michael can. Yeah, you have the ability to escape me at any time by just leaving, whereas I am just here. Yeah, I'm stuck in these thoughts, and I'm stuck in this body, and this is who I am, and I can't get away from it. And while Aza is, like, yelling these things at Daisy, they end up in a car accident. Yeah. And in her discombobulated state, She's concerned about her father's old phone, which was in the trunk and ended up getting destroyed. But eventually she passes out by the time she gets put into an ambulance. Yeah. And as she's getting a CT, she keeps asking if she's going to be given antibiotics because she's concerned about getting C. diff. And it turns out that Aza has mild lacerations on her liver and that she's going to get plenty of rest and a short hospital stay and she'll be fine. No antibiotics required. But Aza is freaking out about having to stay in the hospital overnight because she thinks that's going to give her something and kill her. Yeah, which is always the chance of, but the reality is, like, the sanitization standards in a hospital are usually much higher than they are in your home. She is disproportionately concerned about this, which is basically, like, the main thing with OCD. You are disproportionately concerned about something, and so you come up with compulsions or your mind comes up with compulsions that are supposed to help combat the concern that you have. And so during the night, while her mom is asleep, Aza continues to get into her head about all the things she thinks could happen or all the things she thinks have already happened. Like, you are already dying from this. And so her compulsions drive her to get up and use hand sanitizer before taking several pumps of it and putting it in her mouth. Yeah. And her mom catches her doing it, and Asa ends up throwing up as a nurse comes in to help take care of it. Yeah, because, again, they put crap in hand sanitizer to make you sick on purpose so that you don't ingest it. Yeah, it's real gross. Yeah. And the next morning, Asa wakes up and hopes that her compulsions have abated. Like, she thinks that she'll get better because, like... She did the thing. She gave in to the thing, and so she should be better, but she quickly realizes that that's not how this works. That's not the case. And the chapter ends with her basically looking at her mom and saying, I'm in trouble. And so, like, I really not enjoy, but I like that it ended with her being, like, help. Yeah. Basically turning to her mom and being like, I can't do this anymore. And so while she's in the hospital, she gets intensive therapy for the next week. And she's also being treated for the lacerated liver. Eventually, she's sent home for bed rest, and she's out of school for two weeks. Still seeing her therapist and taking her new medication on a daily basis, because 
Mom's involved now. Well, and before she wasn't taking her medication on a daily basis. And I feel like that's something that a lot of people with mental health problems or even physical problems, they'll be like, I know I need to take this medication, but I take it only three times a week or whatever, because that's how their brain wants them to deal with it. Uh, We won't go into it, but I know that your family, my family, some of your friends and some of my friends all have dealt with situations where somebody with mental health doesn't want to take their medicine. Right. And so someone goes off their meds because they're like, well, I don't need it anymore. Look how well I'm doing. It's like you were doing this well because you're taking your meds. You need to keep taking your meds. Right. Like there's legitimately been instances where people that I consider very close family friends, like they would get into almost physical altercations with me because they were off of them. So like... It's important, and and it's hard for people in that situation to understand the importance because they feel fine when they're taking it, and so they'll stop. And it's one of those things, like, you're fine because you're taking your meds. The second you go off it, you're not fine anymore, and you need to realize, like, consciously know this about yourself and just realize you should keep taking your meds no matter how you're feeling. Right, right. But one last thing that Dr. Singh tells Aza that I really appreciated when I was reading this for the first time is that you don't have to be afraid of that thought. Thought is not action. And that's basically become my mantra in any time I'm having a mental health situation. Like thoughts are not actions. Like you can think whatever, but as long as you're not acting on that thought, it doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. And so that is another thing that I picked up from this book that I found really helpful. So I just wanted to highlight that there. Yeah, it's important. And on Aza's first day back, following everything that happened, Daisy and Aza make up. Daisy informs Aza that she and Michael have broken up, and also she got a haircut because her sister put gum in her hair. And she sold her car because cars are expensive to own. As they should be for anybody in high school, let's just be honest. And after all of that, Aza ends up finally telling her mom about the money in her bank account. And I kind of agreed with her mom in this situation where she's like, this boy needs to not try to buy you. Aza's like, that's not what the money is for. But she's like, no, 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 no. I'm a mom. Listen. Right. Like she was happy that she's doing good things with it. But at the same time, it's like, it's still a little strange to. A boy should not just give you $100,000. Listen, if a boy gave me (laughs) $100,000 right now, I'd be like, okay, you know what? You bought my friendship for now. Let's see how long it lasts. Oh, goodness. And at school, Michael tries to discuss the breakup with Aza, but she's really not having it. She's like, you two talk, because you're not both going to talk to me about it. You're going to talk to each other about it. I'm not the messenger. Just talk to one another. She finally texts Davis back, and they decide to meet up at Applebee's for dinner, because that's the only restaurant in town. It's not in Indianapolis. I I can guarantee you that, but yeah. But they have this disaster of a date at Applebee's, and they agree to break up. He seems really hurt, and Aza sort of seems kind of, like, cold about it. But she knows that she can't really give him what he wants or needs in a relationship because she can't be physical with him. Without going into a panic attack. And so the next day at school, Daisy tells her that... Michael's art has made it into an underground show and that they need to go there to support him. And it's literally an underground show. They all go and Michael is swept up into the night of being adored for his art. But Daisy and Aza go to explore the sewers, which sounds very weird for someone who has OCD. Is also afraid of germs in like every way, shape, or form. But we sort of see this scene where... Aza is fine, and Daisy is, like, losing it down there. And Aza's, like, turning off her flashlight, and she's like, this is not scary. I experience much worse fears and anxieties than walking in a sewer in the dark. Yeah, you really see Daisy start to get a grasp on what the hell's going on with Aza at that point. Like, they were starting to rekindle their friendship, but I think that really, like, cleared up the process for her. Like, I'm in the dark. I know that the voices are the way back, so, like, I'm not afraid right now. Yeah. Like, even being in complete darkness, I know that if I walk back the way I came, I'm going to be fine. Whereas, like, in my brain, it's never that. Like, it's unknowing, it changes, and it only gets worse. So it's like... And I feel like that is one of the, like, main things about Aza's OCD. It's not knowing that's the problem. 
Like, if you know bad things or if you know good things, either way, you know. Right. So you don't need to be afraid because you already know what's going to happen. The not knowing is what really drives Aza's OCD and fear. Yeah. The fact that there's a point zero 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 one percent chance of it happening is like, oh my God, that's a chance. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it could happen. It could still happen. So there's a chance. Yeah. Yeah. And that's when they have this serious talk and Asa comes to a serious realization about Pickett's disappearance and sort of like the mystery starts to make sense. All these clues that have been laid out. And she decides to tell Davis, but not the police because... The whole ridiculousness with his Tuatara getting all of his money. Well, on top of that, he didn't want no, she didn't want Noah to find out from like the news or the police right. that this had happened. When she finally makes it home that night, she finally opens up to her mom about her life and everything happening. And I feel like that's something that really needed to happen in order for them to. Not They weren't clashing, but they were just not on the same page. I was going to say is that they could better understand one another because, like, they're not there, you know? You had, right. You had one person at the back of the book and one person just reading the first page and going, like, are you ready to talk about it yet? And it's like, right. no, 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 yeah. no, no, no. I feel like this is really the moment that they sort of bond over everything that's happened since Aza's father passed away, and it helps her... Get to the point not where she can understand Aza's mental health problems, but get to the point where she can sort of accept it. Yeah. Accept that this is something she'll be struggling with probably for the rest of her life. And the next day, Aza has Davis come over and she tells him that she believes his body is down in the sewers near where the art show had taken place the night before. It goes about as well as can be expected. And after he leaves, Aza has Daisy come over and they continue mending their friendship at that point. And in the last chapter, it's about a month later, and it comes out on the news that a body was found after the police received an anonymous tip. Aza tells Davis it wasn't her or Daisy, but he tells her that he and Noah are the ones who told the cops because they didn't just want his body to be down in the sewers rotting the whole time. Right. And a few months later, Davis comes to say goodbye and give Aza a gift. And it ends up being that painting that she saw in his house that she really loved. Which makes sense. But what were your thoughts overall for the book? I liked it. It just, I, I think like you said, it, it's not my cup of tea. But at the same time, like it was well written. And I think a lot of it helped me understand mental health better, which I think is not a negative thing. I think if anything, that's positive. Yeah. And... You know, it overall was a good story. It's not like I had anything negative to say about it. It just wasn't something I personally would go out of my way to read and enjoy. I think what I realized upon rereading this is that I suggested it to you because it is my favorite John Green book. Yeah. But also, I didn't realize how sort of intense the mental health stuff is, especially for someone who doesn't have any of these problems and sort of like... Shining a light on that is, like, harder, I guess, for you to understand than it was for me to understand. Yeah. I feel like you had a lot more WTF moments while you were reading it than I did. Though I definitely had a couple. I still feel like, though, like, the reality of it is is most people don't understand it, mental health, very well, period. Otherwise, mental health in America or in the world would probably be better taken care of. Right. So, I feel like it's an important book to read because it opens your eyes to just one volume of what mental health covers spectrum wise. Like, let's be honest. It's, it's a cover of an extreme situation of OCD in this one person. Yeah. 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 And so like, by no means do I feel like I'm educated on the subject now, but I do feel like I have some more knowledge than I did coming in, which I think is an important thing. Right. Yeah. And in turn, like grasping an understanding on, OCD, because, like, I've had employees that have told me that they, in the past, are OCD, and friends that have told me that they're OCD, and, like, I've always felt like I understood it, but I clearly did not. Right. And the manifestation of certain mental health problems looks different on everyone. Oh, yeah. And so I feel like, for some people, their OCD is hard to manage and a difficulty but they're never going to be in the hospital for swallowing hand sanitizer. 
Like, yeah, it's never going to get there. There's different extremes, obviously. And the extreme might be cleanliness, and this, the house is just spotless, and that's the way you notice. Or it could be as crazy as the situation in this book where you're in the hospital because of your OCD. Right, right. For me, my main reasons I enjoyed this as much as I did is being able to see someone who I could understand and I could see where they're coming from and I can understand their experience, but also at the same time, getting the advice from a fictional character's therapist has actually really helped me in a way that traditional therapy hasn't helped me in the past. And I think that's part of the reason I enjoyed it. Yeah, makes sense. But I feel like we will steer away from the John Green style books for a while yet, so we can hopefully <laughs> find you some new favorite authors in the next season. I, again, I think he was a good author. I think the book was good. I don't have anything against him. It just it wasn't what I expected, I guess. Okay. And 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 that's fine because. Do you think if it had focused on the mystery more and the mental health less, you would have enjoyed it more? I don't know. I don't know that it would have changed that necessarily. Like, okay. I obviously love mystery stuff, so, like, maybe, but I think it was perfect the way it was, the way it needed to be, so, like, I don't want it, I don't want it changed either. Right, right. So. I just think you need more action. So you, like, get a five-star book out of me, yes. Yeah, but yeah. I th- honestly, I think John Green's writing styles were fine. Like, it was definitely more complex than I think some of the other writers you've had me read from mm-hmm. have been. And it definitely made me turn my brain power up a little bit, which, I again, isn't a negative thing. If anything, it's enlightening. So I guess we will catch you in a few weeks. Yes. For the next sports episode. But we will be on all of our social media between now and when the hiatus ends in about the middle of July. Yes. So make sure you check that out. It will be linked in the show notes. And we will catch you after the break, guys. Bye. Bye.